Well, let me confess something to you. I'm frustrated. Are you, any of you frustrated? Raise your hand if you're frustrated. Yeah, we've got somebody out there who's like, yeah, buddy. All right. Uh, I'm frustrated. There's a few things I'm frustrated about right now. I am frustrated with myself. It's one of the things I'm frustrated with. You know, in, in this time of, of this, this pandemic and the things that are being required of us and asked of us and all the different things that we need to be reading and remembering and all that, I get frustrated when I forget things. Or if I don't stress things enough so that we can have the kinds of conversations that we need to have, I get frustrated. I get frustrated when we have extremes in the Christian community and we're being told as churches that we're not being faithful stewards of God's gospel if we're not over here on one extreme or over here on the other extreme. I get frustrated because in the midst of all of this, I feel as though some of the messages that we get are inconsistent with each other. Wear masks, don't wear masks. Wear masks if you're going to be breathing, but don't wear masks if you need to breathe. We're like... All kinds of frustrations. And so things seem uncertain, don't they? I mean, I meet with people who anxiety levels for them increase because they have legitimate health issues that if they get COVID, it's going to be a problem for them. And then I get people on the other side who say COVID isn't real, except when it is. I'm frustrated. And things seem uncertain. Things seem like they're kind of all over the place, and there's no real definitive answers on anything. And then I get frustrated with how we as the Christian community are supposed to be ministers of the gospel, and we seem to become more concerned about being ministers of a particular ideology. And the gospel takes the back seat. I get frustrated. It's inconsistent even for us, and then it seems like the world around us just doesn't make sense, right? How many of you agree with that? That it seems like the world just doesn't make sense. Okay. I'm frustrated. Here's the good news. Regardless of whether or not Rob is frustrated, and regardless of whether or not we as Pathway Community Church people are frustrated, or anybody watching online is frustrated, God is at work even when life doesn't make sense. God is at work, even when life doesn't make sense. If you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app or whatever it is that you're using, if you're on our online platform and you're using that sidebar for taking a look at Scripture, I want you to turn with me to a book of the Bible that I actually think is incredibly appropriate for the times that we live in, the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And uh, if you do not know where the book of Esther is, then I just want to let you know that in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And one of the ways we like to show respect for God's word here at Pathway is we like to stand for the reading of his word. So would you please stand with me as we read Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Here's what it says. And this is uh, Mordecai talking to 
his niece slash adopted daughter, Esther. Here's what he says. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position, listen, for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you are God and we are not, and that you are not surprised by anything that we are experiencing in our world today. And you are not threatened by it. You are not anxious of it. And so I thank you that you are God and we are not. And I pray that we would be faithful followers of you and of your gospel in a time of uncertainty for people. And so, Jesus, to that end, I pray that you will help us to mold our thinking and our emotions to be more in line with who you are and less in line with how the world responds. In your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson here on Esther because the history uh, surrounding the book of Esther matters. Now, in ancient Persia, ancient Persia had these tribes, and amongst these tribes, they had one of the tribesmen, the tribe's leaders, uh, king, his name was Cyrus. And Cyrus, 17 years before this account, conquered Babylon, otherwise known as, or it's in the state of Persia. And so, Cyrus conquered Babylon, and he brought some stability and economic growth to Babylon. A lot of the Babylonians at that point when they were conquered were wondering, what's going to happen to us? Life is going to be unsettling. But Cyrus comes along and Cyrus actually creates stability for Babylon. This is the only empire, for example, where the king, catch this, was subject to his own laws. That matters. Cyrus employed this. And so because Cyrus established Persia, with that in mind, what comes later with Xerxes makes more sense. But the king was subject to his own laws. And it made Persia one of the most stable empires ever because there was a rule of law. And the book of Esther even indicates that the Jewish population prospered financially and most prospered so well that they were not motivated to leave Babylon and return to Israel. For them, it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Now, just previous to our account in Esther, we have Xerxes' dad, Darius the Great, allow Israel to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. But the people of God just weren't too motivated to get involved. There just wasn't a lot of interest Haggai, the book of Haggai in the Minor Prophets, he actually had to rebuke them for their lack of kingdom focus. And if you read the Minor Prophets, it is like statement after statement about get in line with God, follow Him, turn your hearts towards Him. Later in Zechariah, Zechariah brings a stinging series of rebukes to the Jews that are in Persia for their apathy and lack of desire for the kingdom. Haggai explains again why God was starting to deplete the wealth and the resources that were looking like failed crops. 
And he was displeased with their lack of the stewardship vision, that they just weren't getting involved with the things that he was about. Haggai also predicted that without repentance, God would soon stir up massive trouble for these Jews by way of persecution. And then in the 11th month of the previous year of our story, Zechariah commanded the Jews, listen, you ready? Flee from Babylon, a command that was ignored for the most part. And so God began to orchestrate trouble for the Jewish community for the, and as well as deliverance for them. And that's an important background and understanding that we have for the book of Esther. You see, Esther is the culmination of God's warnings, both in the discipline of the Jewish community and in the salvation of the Jewish community. In chapter 1 of the book of Esther, we have King Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus was a title that was given him. His name is Xerxes. And so for the remainder of our time here, I'm just going to call him Xerxes, okay? Uh, he showcased his wealth for 180 days and he gave, uh, and gave a seven-day feast for all his officials. You know what he was doing there? He was talking about just how great he was and he wanted everyone to see how great he was. And he gives this giant feast. Queen Vashti, his wife, refused to come to him when he sends his servants to go get her. You see, Xerxes was known as a guy in, in this story as a guy who really liked his alcohol. And he liked his alcohol so much that the story tells us that when he was in high spirits after having all this, the parties and the, and the alcohol, he sent for Vashti because he wanted to parade her in front of his guests because of her beauty in his eyes. And Vashti had her own banquet that she had had, and, and so she knows what's kind of the deal here, and she just says, nah, I ain't going to be your trophy wife. Right? Like she didn't want to be paraded in front of everybody, and so she says, no, forget it. And so Xerxes, at that point, he's like, well, hang on a second. I commanded you to do something. You didn't do it. I am the ultimate authority here. So he meets with his officials, and they create this law to make sure that never again will a woman disrespect her husband. They weren't allowed. The man was the ultimate authority of the home there. And so Vashti is sent away never to be brought back into the presence of Xerxes again. And that's another way of saying that he essentially divorced Vashti. That's chapter one. Now there's an interesting thing that takes place between chapter one and chapter two. You see, uh, Darius, King Darius the Great, Xerxes' dad, had started a military campaign against Greece. They were called the Greco-Persian Wars, if you wanted to look it up. And in the Greco-Persian Wars, we find that Darius goes off and he wants to conquer Greece, and he's unsuccessful in, in terms of being able to fully conquer Greece. And so Xerxes then went on to fulfill his dad's desire to conquer Greece. And so in 480... 480 B.C., Xerxes personally led the second Persian invasion of Greece in one of the largest ancient armies ever assembled. And he gained an incredible victory, a very famous victory, 
at a place called Thermopylae. Now, you may have heard of the name Thermopylae before. How many of you have ever heard this phrase? We are Sparta. There's a lot of you who remember that. This is that story. This is that Xerxes in the story. Xerxes has this desire to fulfill his dad's dream of conquering Greece. And so he goes, and, and, and we know the story that ultimately there were like these 7,000 Grecian people. There were the Athenians and the Spartans, and there was another group that I can't pronounce their name and don't remember, so I'm just going to keep moving forward. And ultimately what ended up happening is that they were betrayed by one of their own tribesmen. And so the Spartans under King Leonidas says to the others, you need to go and make sure that our people are going to be safe. Get them out of Athens. And so 300 Spartans were left to fight as many as 200 and 50,000 Persian troops in a corridor. And this is a story that has ignited the imagination and the passions of many in terms of what it means to stand tall and strong in the face of extreme adversity. This is why sports teams call themselves Spartans. Because there is this incredible mythology about the strength and the fortitude of these Spartan Greece people. But they fell. And Xerxes continued on in his campaign and sacks Athens and burns it to the ground. And then ultimately, the Greek tribes begin to band together and they go on the offensive and they conquer and they win, and Xerxes is left to go home defeated. And then in chapter 2, it says this, Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided. You see, there's a four-year gap in the story between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in that four years is the Greco-Persian Wars. And so Xerxes goes home defeated. Xerxes goes home and, and he's angry, he's furious because you got to remember that just before this, he was just showcasing how great he was and he comes back as a defeated emperor. And it tells us that he remembered Vashti, his wife, who he could no longer seek comfort in. And so we find that Xerxes needs a new wife. Interesting. I would suggest to you that if the emperor is coming into a situation or just coming out of a situation where he, his ego has certainly been threatened, things are going to be tense in the kingdom. And so these virgins are called to him and, and ultimately we know that, that there's something interesting taking place here in the book of Esther because it's very different than most of the other Old Testament books. For example, it, Esther is the only book that does not mention God directly in terms of the term Yahweh. 
which is the traditional term understood by the Jewish community to attribute to God. Esther doesn't really make mention of God in that sense. What we do find, though, is this, that when the event seemed out of control to Esther and her uncle slash adoptive dad, when the Mordecai, even when things looked like evil was going to win, God was at work. Now, this is an incredibly important principle of life that I believe that this is describing what's going on in the events there, but I also believe that God is at work in our world today. And so when things seem like they're just going awry, when evil looks like it's going to triumph, and even for a while it feels as though we're under the foot of evil, God is at work and God will triumph because that's what he does. He wins. God worked through the dark days. Esther is taken to the harem in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And so I'm just going to give you a summary of what's going on in the book of Esther. She's taken to the harem in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, where we find that she agrees to, to become part of this process. You find that there's a faithful obedience from Esther in that she risked her own life in front of the king in chapter 5, verses 1 to three, and then we've got these victories that are taking place in the book of Esther that are in chapter seven through 10, where Esther reveals Haman's plot, and we're gonna talk about all this. But can I just say this? Sometimes it feels like God is silent, doesn't it? Do you find that in the midst of heightened anxiety, heightened stress, that you crave something from God in a way that other times in life, are inferior to? That you just desire more of God and from God in those times of stress and anxiety. I really, really believe that sometimes it feels like God is silent, like he's somewhere else, like he's, you're unable to contact him, like God has left the building. And I really believe that it may have seemed that way to Esther. It may have seemed that way. She, you need to understand that she lived under the rule of a Gentile king. Her father and mother were dead. She was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. She had been taken from him and brought into the king's harem. And, and obeying her cousin slash adoptive dad's instructions, she kept her Jewish ethnicity silent and despite everything that was going on in her life that led up to this point, there was hope. Now, she may not have known it at the moment, but we have the privilege of looking at it from our vantage point and reading back on it. Of all the concubines in the harem, Esther pleased King Xerxes the most, and he made her king. And so what we can find here in this story is, is that God, in fact, did not leave the building. And so whatever you're dealing with in life, where you feel like God might be silent right now for you, where you feel like maybe God has left the building that's in your life, I want you to understand something very important. God has not left the building. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God has not left the building. You may have a hard time seeing him. You may have a hard time hearing him, but that doesn't mean that he has left the building. He is with you. He is with you. God has not left the building in Esther's life, and he's not left the building in yours. God placed Esther as queen in order to save his people from this chief almost Prime Minister Haman. 
Mordecai regularly visited Esther, and, and, and during one of his visits, he discovers this plot to assassinate the king. So there's these two guards that they, they just want the king dead. Mordecai overhears it, and he gets the message to the king through Esther, and Esther gives Mordecai credit, and it, this is getting written down in the events that are leading up to those, or the events that are recorded on a daily basis. And later, Mordecai refused to kneel before this guy named Haman. Haman was the king's official who was honored above everybody else, even had a statue that he wanted made. Uh, he was, Haman was furious, and he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, and so he had decided to take steps not to only eliminate Mordecai, but to eliminate all of the Jews. And so they were facing the potential genocide that was coming their way. And so he wanted to eliminate everybody. Haman succeeded in persuading the king to issue a decree to annihilate the Jews because he was basically lied about the Jewish community, saying that, that they were not going to honor the king and these kinds of things. And so Mordecai informed Esther of the dire situation and that the life of every Jew was in jeopardy. And this is where chapter 4 kicks in. You see, because Esther is nervous in the story, if Esther, and she even tells you one of the rules that's going on in this time, that she cannot just go whenever she wanted willy-nilly to go and talk to the king. She had to be summoned by the king. She couldn't just enter the presence of the king on her own because that was the law. And so for her to go and do so was to put her life at risk. Mordecai comes to her and says, listen, Haman's got this plot. He's going to kill all of the Jews, us included. You need to go talk to your husband, the king. And she says, but I might die. And Mordecai says, But maybe you've been placed there for such a time as this. Because if you don't go to the king, he says, that you and your father's household is going to die anyway. But maybe you've been placed there as queen for such a time as this. And so he persuaded her to put her own life at risk by going to the king uninvited in order to plea for the lives of the people. Now, during that night, during what you could say was a divine bout of insomnia, where Xerxes just couldn't sleep at all, he did what the rest of us would do. He called on all his officials and got them to start reading to him. Probably one of the more boring documents that could be read. They were reading to him all the official records, and he discovered there that Mordecai's previous whistleblowing regarding the assassination attempt came forward. And so then the king says, wow, you know what? We got to honor Mordecai. We got to do something for this guy. And that further enraged Haman because Haman wanted Mordecai and all of the Jews dead. And so, 
Haman actually comes into the room, and his plan is to see if he can enact this idea of killing Mordecai. And, and, uh, and so the king, right before Haman is allowed to say anything, the king says, hey, I got this idea. We're going to honor somebody. And Haman is like, sure, yeah, what's up? We're going to honor Mordecai. Oh. Man, that almost seems orchestrated, doesn't it? It almost seems like there was a plan in place. King decided to publicly honor Mordecai, further enraging Haman. And shortly thereafter, at a banquet that she hosted, Esther revealed to the king Haman's plan to eliminate the Jews. And now it was the king's turn to be furious because he was manipulated. And Haman ended up impaled on the very pole that he prepared for Mordecai. At Esther's request, the king decreed that the Jews had the right to protect themselves against any who might attack them. See, here's what happened here. See, at this point, the king was not able to revoke his law, his rule, to go and kill all of the Jews. He wasn't allowed to because he's subject to his own laws. He can't change his own laws, but he can add new ones. And so the Jewish community was then allowed to defend themselves, and so they did. And then in defending themselves, they went out after every single person that wanted them dead, including the rest of Haman's family. God worked through Esther and Mordecai, and the Jews in Persia were saved. Now, it's interesting to me. Because very often when we read these stories, we read them often from one perspective, and that is this. How many of you feel like I'm about to tell you you need to be like Esther and Mordecai? Okay, I am going to. But there's something more important at play here. Let me offer this to you. When you read the account of Esther or any account where God raises up an individual Please note that that individual is Israel's Savior in that story. And I just want to let you know, you're not the Savior. Jesus is. Every book of the Bible points to Jesus in some way. And in this point, Esther and Mordecai serve as those who bring salvation to the Jews in Persia They are the Christ figure in the story. We are not. Jesus is there. You see, there would be an even greater deliverance brought about by God, by an individual who would seem just as unlikely a candidate to do so. It was a lowly Jewish carpenter who lived under Roman occupation. And so the message is clear. God is at work even when life doesn't make sense. God is at work even when life doesn't make sense. See, that's what we find in the story of Esther. God at work when life wasn't making sense at all. And God raises up Esther and Mordecai to bring salvation to the Jewish community. We understand that that's a representation of of a larger story of God's redemptive purposes for mankind. So, So they are the Christ figure in the story. But there are things in the story that do relate to us. And those things are that God may call upon you in times of uncertainty to be his instrument to lead people to their deliverance in Jesus. That's who we are in the story. 
God's at work even when life doesn't make sense. We've got to be willing to take some risks if we're going to make a difference. Call, God calls us to face fears in order to fulfill our calling. You know, it's interesting to me that in the scriptures, we read, do not be afraid or fear not 365 times. That's one for every day. Be thou not afraid. Do not fear. And usually, that is accompanied with, for I go with you. Usually. Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. Esther is where she says, go gather all the Jews and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and all my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. I'm going to put my life at risk. I'm going to seek the deliverance of the people that I belong to. And even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So here's the question. How committed are we to the gospel? Because the gospel alone is what Paul says has the power to save. How committed are we to the gospel over the other things that get us excited? It is expensive to be effective. Huh? See what I did there? It is expensive to be effective. Luke chapter 14, verse 25-27 says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he says, If anyone comes to me, listen, and does not hate his mother and father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. cannot. Now, I want you to understand that what he's saying here is that he needs to be primary and that you don't sacrifice him for the others. How many times in life do we sacrifice Jesus for the others? And then he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple, which carrying your cross means that you would forfeit your life, that you believe that you're, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you, as Paul says. And then later in verses 28 through 35, Jesus stresses the importance of counting the cost and following him, meaning that it's not just this flippant decision. You count the cost because following Jesus costs he says it costs. And we need to take it more seriously. Again, are we more concerned about the gospel or are we more concerned about the other things in life that get us excited? Whether it's an ideology, whether it's a sports team, whether it's a personal opinion, whatever it is, what trumps what? And it needs to be the gospel. It needs to be the gospel. Being a disciple costs what it costs, and it never goes on sale. Ever. There's no coupon. There's no Black Friday sales. It costs what it costs. And it's consistent. And he asks it of us. 
And so let's talk about Jesus in this story. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now, this is where Jesus has resurrected. He's walking along the road with two disciples. And, and so they, you know, he's like, well, why is everybody in such a bad mood? He says, haven't you heard about the events that have happened? And then they, he begins to teach them about everything that the scriptures say about him. Now, listen, when Luke starts with Moses, he's referencing the Torah or the Pentateuch. These are the first five books of the Bible. When he mentions his Moses, it's the first five books of the Bible. When he talks about the prophets, all the prophets, he's referring to the rest of the Old Testament. See you know what he's saying there? What Luke is saying there is that Jesus began from Genesis to Malachi, telling them, teaching them everything that all of it said about him. So where is Jesus in this story? Well, for the Jews under Persian rule, the odds were stacked against them. Their only hope was that the one whom all authorities must ultimately answer to would somehow provide salvation for them that he would provide their deliverance. And so God raises up Esther and Mordecai to be able to do that. God put Esther and Mordecai just where they needed to be at just the right time that they needed to be there to bring about the salvation of the Jews in Persia. Now for us under the rule of sin, the odds are stacked against us. And our only hope is that God will somehow provide for our deliverance as well. And so God did just that through his own son, God became human at just the right time, in just the right place to bring about his salvation. Galatians chapter 4, verses 5, 4 and 5 say this. When the set time had fully come, does that sound orchestrated to you? Like maybe God had a plan? When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. So what does that mean for us today? God used Esther and Mordecai to bring about the deliverance of his people, but his people had to be notified. So Mordecai wrote in the, kings, in the name of the king and sent news throughout the kingdom by mounted couriers on fast horses, according to Esther chapter 8, verse 10. Mordecai sends out the people to be the ambassadors of the king to bring the message of the king to the people under the king. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassadors as though we were making his appeal, sorry, as though God were making his appeal through us. Sound similar to you? God used Jesus Christ to bring about the rescue of all people, but his people have to be notified today as well. His creation needs to be, that's what I mean when I say his people, his creation, all of humanity needs to be notified today as well so that they can become adopted sons and daughters by the king. We have the privilege and responsibility to carry out this news as fast and as effectively as we can throughout the world in every means available to us. So when you leave this place and you go into your homes and you're talking to your families, to them, they need the gospel. You still need the gospel. I still need the gospel. 
Because Galatians also tells us that we're to grow in the grace and the understanding of the gospel. So we all need it as well. And so if you ever go to any kind of service, any kind of environment where someone is preaching the gospel and you say, yeah, don't worry, I already know that. No, you don't. Not fully. Because if we did, it would be the priority. Not our pet topics. Not our pet peeves. The gospel would be the priority. And we all need it. So when we leave here, and we go into our families, and we go into our workplaces, and, and, and we just deal with it personally between us and the Lord, when is the last time that you sat before God and say, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for doing what I could not? And coming to terms with that, in the recognition of how much he desires you, and never getting bored of that, never missing that point that he sacrificed for you because you couldn't and I couldn't. And so whether we do this by mouth, word of mouth, by print and digital media, by lives that communicate to everyone who sees us that we have good news to share, that's what we do. So how about this? Let's commit to each other this. On your social media, how many of you are on social media? Raise your hand if you are on social media, whatever platform that is. Okay, so some of you are not, and that's okay. You've got an awesome mouth that you can use to spread the gospel. For those of you who are on social media, how about this? Make that a platform that you use to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, rather than whether or not you've got a nice flower arrangement. Or you've got a great meal. Or even in that, say, thank you, Lord, for this. And allow that to be a staging place that can start a conversation about the goodness of Jesus. But how about we use those things as tools for the gospel rather than tools for self-promotion? Here, look at me and validate me. No. Here, look at Jesus and honor him in these mediums. It's not bad to tell people what's going on in your day, but if that is the only thing we are sharing, how would anyone in the world know that you have the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has redeemed your soul from the pits of hell, that he did what we could not? That needs to be a focus. Mordecai and Esther, they're not so different than you and me. And so as Christ's ambassadors, we have been providentially provided to proclaim deliverance through him to those who are perishing. We have been made, through Jesus Christ, children of the king. And we carry with us the message of the king. Please, in the same way that Paul pled with the churches, I plead with you. I plead with you, go to God today and talk to him about what he did in your life. And then today, commit yourselves to making sure that every single person that you encounter has the op same opportunity to receive Jesus that you do. 
that you did. Because all of us, all of us need the Savior. So what are you doing as an ambassador? What message are you bringing to the world? Is it about you? Your preferences? Your beefs? Or is it about him who has an eternal message for everyone? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this time that we've had together. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are God and we are not. And I thank you so much that you did what we could not. You accomplished ultimate victory on the cross and in the resurrection. And so, Lord Jesus, we put our faith in your resurrection and we thank you that you are the resurrected God, that you conquered sin, that you conquered death, and you offer to us adoption into your families. Jesus, I pray that we will come to a better understanding, a deeper understanding, a more penetrating understanding of who we are in relationship to you and your extreme love for us, and that we would be a people that would boldly proclaim your message in every medium we have available to us. In your name I pray. Amen.